0: there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 5, Italian Beef. This will be the first episode in a series focusing on Italy up to the end of the 20s. Italy has probably the poorest reputation of any of the major powers in the World War II era. Not only did the country fall under an authoritarian regime, it wound up playing third fiddle in the most heinous alliance ever assembled. It helped lead the way for the bullying power politics that would define diplomacy in the 30s to really get going. But maybe what people most remember about this era in Italy was the gross incompetence. The gargantuan, comedic incompetence. It really was so bad that people forget that Italy acted as a major world player, much less was treated as one by the nations around it. But keep in mind that Italy was and is one of the larger nations in Europe, with one of the bigger economies to match. They had an overseas empire, and enough ambition to throw their weight around with their smaller neighbors. And if there is anything you're going to learn in listening to this podcast, it's that believing in yourself can get you really far. It can can also get your home demolished and a warrant placed up for your immediate arrest, but far nevertheless. Anyway. Italy may not appear at first glance to be a truly major player in this narrative. The country's disastrous performance during World War II casts a long shadow backwards onto the years that preceded it. But this podcast isn't about raiding military campaigns. It's about tracking the fall of historical dominoes and the consequences that followed. And Italy was vital to knocking so very many of those dominoes down. So, the question becomes, Why Italy of all places? How did the least of the great powers set an example for larger nations to follow? Well, it all has to do with successive waves of national disappointments and divisions exposing Italy to a determined and distinctly unscrupulous ideology. I suppose we should start with asking what even was Italy before 1919? Well, imperfect would be a very good word to describe the nation going into the 20s. The country was still young, having just been unified back in 1861. Many of the nation's elderly would still predate the country that they lived in. Much like Germany a decade later, a relatively modernized principality-turned-kingdom had managed to turn itself into a champion of a unified nation. In expeditions and wars, various pieces of the Italian peninsula fell into place, and a united Italian kingdom was proclaimed though importantly, many Italians still found themselves living outside that kingdom, something that would fuel Italian nationalists into the future. The royal family and central government moved south from Turin into the ancient city of Rome in 1871. In the process, they also confined the pope to the Vatican as they took over the lands of central Italy that the papacy had directly ruled over. One notable characteristic of the new kingdom was its relative anti-clerical element. As the Holy See did not recognize the changes as legitimate, and the new government didn't want to become the Catholic Church's plaything. With most of the Italian peninsula unified, you can now reckon with, with the problems the new nation faced. And one of those problems was the fact that it was composed of over a dozen major regions, each with their own identity and customs, and even their own language. Yes, strictly speaking, they mostly all spoke a dialect of Italian, But do not underestimate the power of regionalism, especially before the rise of mass communication. The various versions of Italian were such that the dialects were oftentimes mutually incomprehensible to each other. And this is far more extreme than, say, the regional dialects in America. A guy from Massachusetts and a guy from Alabama can understand each other, albeit with a bit of disdain between the two of them. A guy from Piedmont in northwest Italy and a guy from Sicily straight up were not going to understand what the other was saying. This could be explained by a number of linguistic influences based on geography. Uh, The guy from Piedmont would probably be exposed to French influence, whether he knew it or not. The guy in Sicily would have been influenced by places like North Africa, Spain, and Greece. Participation in civic life also differed considerably across the Italian nation. The south of Italy was traditionally arranged into a larger kingdom, consisting of the island of Sicily and the southern boot of the Italian peninsula, with the seat of political power in Naples. The two territories were distinct units, but were usually ruled over by the same monarch. So they had different customs, but functioned under the same boss. And in the years before unification, those monarchs ruled with an absolutist bent that probably more appropriate to a larger power. But it's important to note because it meant that public participation in civic life was terribly restricted in these areas compared to the north of Italy, with administration at the top carried out by the king's hand-picked officials. On a more local level, though, were the landholders and gentry that had dominated the life of the farms and towns for centuries. All through southern Italy there was a network of patronage where Local elites had long established personal relationships with the local families whom they employed in their farms or businesses. If anything needed to be done, if redress had to be petitioned for, or special permission sought out, these elites would be the ones to approach by normal people. Now I'm not saying it was like the Italian parts of the Godfather movies, but I am heavily implying it was like the Italian parts of the Godfather movies. In the north, however, things were considerably different. Here there had been centuries of competition and wars, first between various regions and city-states of northern Northern Italy, and then there was centuries of competition and wars between outside rival powers for the various regions and city-states. The one to unify them was also maybe the most unlikely. The Kingdom of Sardinia taking its name from the island in an arcane legal maneuver to obtain the right to call itself a kingdom, was situated in the northwest of the country, bordering southern France. In fact, the royal family of this kingdom hailed from the region of Savoy, an area that could be considered closer to France than Italy, and in due course was pawned off to the French in exchange for their support in the Italian unification. Moreover, The House of Savoy, for centuries, insisted that they still be connected to the Old Kingdom of Germany, mostly so that they could play politics in as many languages as possible. The point is that these probably weren't the most Italian of Italians to found the new nation. They did, however, exploit the passions of Italian nationalism to forge an enhanced kingdom for themselves. Feelings were especially potent in the northern regions of Lombardy, centered around Milan, and Veneto, centered on Venice, both of which had been under the sway of the Austrians. They each had their own long and successful independent histories as city-states and miniature empires, but they supported the unified Italian kingdom in order to expel their German overlords, and continued to advocate uniting those Italians still living in Austria within, within the new kingdom. So after the unification, the country was one political body. But it really wasn't one national body. The regional and linguistic differences weren't affected by unification. And there was a great deal of frustration among nationalists that, while they certainly had gotten a country, they had not gotten a true nation. The people of Italy were foreign to each other. There was no shared identity. Yes, the government was in Rome but it could have been in any other major city for most anyone cared. For the masses of the country, they would not travel around their unified country and revel in shared history. A Venetian did not take trips to Naples or Palermo, or consider them to be towns that they belonged to or had any stake in. A family of itinerant laborers in northern Piedmont would naturally seek out work in southern France, but the idea of going to Umbria towards the south in search of work would have been seen as madness god help a hypothetical poor farmer from calabria down in the southwest trying their hand at making it in cosmopolitan milan but now that the restrictive local governments had given way to the more liberal constitutional monarchy of modern italy there was some place that italians did start looking in order to make their fortunes the new world the united states would famously get the bulk of italian immigrants but Latin America got a sizable share as well. It's worth noting that these immigrations went in waves, with families usually being held together and similar social connections being maintained amongst communities. The immigrants also were sure to keep in touch with their homelands, usually sending back money to help support family members back home. Pretty much the same story as with immigrants today. And that is kind of the tragic thing about Italian nationhood. A community of people from, say, Naples, could keep in touch with their fellows in New York or Chicago in the United States, but if somebody from Florence strolled through town, they'd basically be a foreigner. And this is not a fun little factoid of sociology. This was a persistent issue that was widely recognized as something that needed addressing. Politically, Italy was governed by a democratically elected parliament that answered to the king. Suffrage, though, was initially restricted by both age and economic means. A major player in the Italian political scene was Giovanni Giolitti, who served as Prime Minister off and on for most of the period preceding World War I. He was a prime example of the Italian politician in this era. He kept a soft touch when it came to industrialists and landholders of the nation and stemmed efforts to combat the chronic inequality of that country in favor of satisfying established interests, whether they be from the north or south. As a result, the miserable poverty found in much of the country continued unabated in these years. He did recognize that he had to provide the people something, so over the years he made what he probably thought were token efforts. He implemented the 12-hour maximum workday and established child labor laws, which uh, meant that you couldn't go to work unless you were 12. So yeah, those might not have been the best child labor laws. His governments made attempts at relief programs, especially in the South, but never with enough resources to actually fix anything. Like most other major Italian politicians, he rarely interfered with the affairs of the elites, and offered the have-nots just enough that they didn't rise up in revolution. This kind of governance resulted in a static society, with precious little mobility out of the poverty found in the lower class of the country. One big move he did make was that in 1912 he established universal male suffrage, with the caveat you had to be at least 30 to vote without economic restrictions. He probably came to regret this, as it opened a Pandora's box of potential discontent. Giolitti and his Ilk declined time and time again to improve the material conditions of the country's workers, but he did hand them the right to participate in mass politics by relaxing the voting laws. He might have thought that the average Italian would fall in line with their social betters, or at least be grateful to him for the favor of being allowed to vote. Ultimately, though, it brought a whole lot of disgruntled voters to the ballot box down the road. Now the have-nots could voice an opinion, but would run up against a disinterested political class who saw little benefit in catering to their needs. This created the major long-term political problem that would plague Italy up to the point that the fascists marched on Rome. The poor and disaffected of the nation were not served by the liberal factions in positions of power, and therefore turned to the socialist party that organized to push back against their impoverished conditions. And instead of pushing reforms to counter the appeal of the socialists, the liberals blocked them as best they could. This obstructionist attitude was partially due to how members of parliament got their positions in the first place. Regional leaders typically stuck to their traditional power bases, preferring to keep to their familiar turf. So you have droves of elites without national aspirations, but very interested in making sure that the national government did not interfere too badly with their affairs. I've been using the the catch-all term liberal, and what that means is someone who is supportive of free enterprise and fewer government restrictions on that, while also being open to moderate social reforms. Although that last bit obviously varies quite a bit. There weren't really set parties as we really recognize them, because on a national level, parties didn't have much of an agenda outside foreign policy. There arose a political class in Italy that went to Rome and either served in the legislature or the bureaucracy and that political class got their tickets to Rome paid for from the local elites with the understanding that whatever they did in the capital, it would not interfere with their benefactors back home. So, voila, you have a national government dead set on keeping the trappings of a functioning nation but otherwise making damn sure not to change the status quo. While politicians sought to maintain the status quo in the years preceding World War I, The economy went through some notable changes, though. This was the time period when the divergence in economic life of the North and South really started to, well, diverge. I mentioned how the South was managed by larger political units, and the North, on the other hand, was much more based on regions or local cities. This difference contributed to a different path of development for the two greater regions. The South saw investment focused on the power centers of the larger political bodies especially in Naples and Rome. An effect of this centralization was that these power centers got most of the attention and development. It also meant that there was little interest in developing the human capital outside those power centers. In the old kingdoms of Naples and Sicily, the kings were often outsiders who didn't want a too independent populace thinking for themselves. And in the papal states, well, you really can't look towards the pope for a progressive society, or breaking traditions. Owing to the greater fragmentation in the north, development proceeded apace in multiple areas as local authorities strove to make more from less. This had been the case for centuries, and the traditional manufacturing areas in Italy were focused in the north. As the country started to industrialize, it was in the north that these developments were focused in, and even in agriculture there were differences. Following land reclamation efforts in the north, new farms were established, but these did not necessarily focus on traditional foodstuffs, but instead on higher-profit cash crops. This is in contrast with the continued focus on boring old grains down south. These developments in the north meant that in the cities there was a new underclass of factory workers, while on the newly established farms there were hired hands to work the land on a more contractual basis than what you'd find down south. It should be no surprise that the North would become the heartlands of the Socialist movement. In addition to these economic and political differences, there was also the matter of geography. Italy is dominated by mountains. The northern borders are secured by the Alps, and the Apennines run through the middle of the peninsula. They're an especially dominant feature of the South, where those central mountains break up the landscape and make communication and developmental improvements rather difficult. It's hard to build a telegraph line over a mountain range, much less a railroad. The story isn't improved on the major island of Sicily, itself dominated by a rocky and hilly interior. The north, by contrast, has the major plains, situated in the regions of Veneto, Lombardy, and Piedmont. Italy's major river, the Po, also flows through the north. In a nutshell, the northern parts of the country just present a much more enticing prospect for investors when establishing new industries. What you get from all this is a more cosmopolitan and worldly collection of northern regions, not exactly united amongst each other, but definitely of similar worldviews. They are relatively more familiar with mechanization and industrialization, have greater access to education owing to a greater level of urbanization, and in general have a more connected economy due to a superior infrastructure. In comparison, the South sticks to its older customs, remaining agricultural in occupation and traditional in family life. This divergence is a Gordian knot that even present-day Italy hasn't been able to fully unravel, and will impact the decisions of the decision-makers in the time period we're covering as well. Now, I've been mentioning them a lot, and one huge political change in the years before World War I was the rise of the Italian Socialist Party. Or the PSI and its home acronym. Just as other great powers experienced in the aftermath of large scale industrialization, Italy also saw the rise of a workers' rights movement. But in Italy, this political movement gained a lot more power and influence than in other nations. And unlike, say, the Social Democratic Party over in Germany, the PSI sought to undermine the staid political system by building up popular support, and when elected, often refrained from participation in parliamentary politics, undermining the legitimacy of the government by reducing the support coming out out of it. The logic was that any legislation passed would do so without the backing of a significant chunk of the population, rendering the rule of law alienating to the proletariat. Also, remember how I said that a lot of the members of parliament went to Rome with the express backing of local elites with the expectation they would serve in the interests of those same elites? Well, the socialists created a really big problem in that they didn't serve those local powers on account of being a working class populist party. So, as the socialist influence grows, the businessmen and landholders in some areas are going to get pretty anxious, as they might no longer have someone on the payroll over in Rome looking out for them. Now that we have a clearer picture of Italy before the Great War, just what is going on in Italian politics once the war actually breaks out? Well, they were originally allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary in the Triple Alliance, but decided to be opportunistic and backstab their allies and throw in with France and Britain. Good news? They ended up winning. Bad news. They ended up up winning really badly. There also wasn't a popular consensus as far as Italy entering the war on the Entente side. Italy definitely wanted to snatch up the small areas on its northern frontier with Austria that were still populated by mostly ethnic Italians. But asking an impoverished population to go fight and die over some mountains and valleys was a hard sell. Now, I'm sure those are very nice mountains and valleys, and I know Trieste is a fine town. But after the war got going, it wasn't long before the casualty figures started filtering out and people started realizing the potential bloodbath they were in for. Moreover, there were moral objections to the war as well. The strong block of politically active Catholics was against the war because, well, God doesn't like war. The socialists were also against war because they too were pacifistic, and the conflict merely pitted worker against worker to the benefit of no one. Those local elites I keep yammering on about were against it because they knew damn well that war meant increased government control and, worst of all, potential taxes. Giolitti, who had been forced to step down as Prime Minister in March 1914, had preferred to remain neutral he correctly saw that Italy was still too disorganized for the massive war that was developing. His successor, though, Antonio Salandra, disagreed. Salandra, with approval from the King of Italy, Victor Emmanuel III, reached out to the Entente and secured a whole smorgasbord of goodies in the event that Italy turned coat and attacked Austria. It wasn't just the Italian-speaking parts of Austria, it was also large parts of northern Dalmatia. region comprising modern-day Croatia's Adriatic coastline, they'd also get a protectorate over Albania, which basically meant it would become a colony, and also uh, some ill-defined parts of southern Turkey and some colonial concessions in Africa and Asia. It was a pretty naked land grab, and much of the population would have pitched a fit about it had they known the details up front. But Salandra and the Entente reps were sure to keep the agreement, or the Treaty of London as it came to be known, a close secret. With the approval of the King, on May 3, 1915, Salandra revoked the alliance Italy had had with, with Germany and Austria. Giolitti sprang into action to try and stop this. He had been deposed as Prime Minister the year previously. That was in reality just a plan of maneuver to allow him to stay out of the political spotlight for a little while. Salandra had actually been his hand-picked replacement, and and Gileadie still held the loyalties of the majority of Parliament. He approached King Victor Emmanuel and tried to sway the king over to his viewpoint. But over the course of a week, the situation had spiraled out of control. Nationalist crowds packed the streets calling for war with the hated Austrians after breaking the alliance. The King informed Gioliti that he supported the country's entry into the war, and on May 13th, Salandra theatrically offered his resignation as Prime Minister, daring Giolitti to make a move. But, as you have might have gathered from my abbreviated descriptions of his style, Giolitti didn't really have the stomach for a genuine showdown. He resigned and slunk off for a time away from Italian politics. He'll be back to perform his half-measure routine one more time before this podcast is over, though. This is also where I'll leave you for this week, with Italy poised to storm over its border and bravely march over the Alps all the way to Vienna. Except it doesn't work out that way at all. For all the opportunism displayed by Salandra, the army sent into the mountains bungled the execution. In a foreshadowing of the disastrous performance of Italy in the 40s, this conflict wasn't going to go well either. Join me next week as we take review of the misfortunes Italy suffered during the war, and more importantly how those disasters further weakened Italian society. And as always, thank you very much for listening.